things going on, so much happening, our minds are spinning. We try to take all of it in and we can't hardly imagine we hear this one day and that the next day and then something else happens and we're at a loss to know what's going on. It seems like the world is shifting beneath our feet every time we turn around. It's as though every place we look, there's shifting sand. Is there anything solid that we can depend upon? Where can we go to find something to stand on, something to build our lives on, something to have confidence in, something to give us hope, something to assure us that there is a future worth pursuing and that the world is not just about to collapse around us, but that there is absolutely a reason to keep on going and absolutely a reason to stand strong and not give up hope, not be dismayed, or as one place in the Bible says, don't lose heart. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and it's true we live in a strange world. It's true that things happen. I mean, we really can't make this stuff up, can we? And everything that I could mention, you could probably match with something else because you just can't keep up with all of the things that have been going on. And and we've all heard about the 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 absolute craziness. Um, It's it's more than craziness. The lostness of the target initiatives and the response that people have made to them. We've heard so much about woke company here and woke company there. And really, they are everywhere. And then, just when we thought we had run out of discovering woke companies, we find out that Cracker Barrel has gone woke. Who would have ever imagined? We just went to Cracker Barrel for a good meal, comfortable atmosphere, maybe the fireplace. And now we find out that they've gone woke along with all the rest of them. Where do we go? What do we do? How do we navigate these times? Well, I want us to have some conversations about that, and I want to hopefully give us some perspective on some of those kinds of things, because we do have a reason for confidence. We do have a reason for hope. We do have a reason to press on and to not lose heart, to not give up. And I am confident that you will not give up. You will join me and everybody else, and we will persevere. The Bible says that you you persevere to the end, and you are an overcomer. And that's what we want to be. We want to be the overcomers in life. Well, I pastor a wonderful church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church. We are a real bunch of people, just like the people that attend the church you go to. And I hope you attend a church. I'll put a good word in for that this week. Haven't said much about that lately. I need to keep ringing that bell because when we go to a church that honors God, that believes the Bible, that teaches the Bible, then we discover that there is reason for hope and we can have confidence in the future. And so that's the kind of church we want to be. Someone that attends our church told me this week that one of the things they like about our church is that we, we preach the Bible. Well, I don't just want to make stuff up for Sunday morning. I want to give people something worthwhile. And so it's my responsibility to base what I have to say on Sundays from the Bible. And if I can't base it in the Bible, then I need to be real careful about saying it. Because our only solid ground is what God says. What I say isn't very important. What God says is of ultimate importance. 
So we need to make sure we find churches that do that. And I want to encourage you to find such a church. Now, I really do hope that your church is faithful. I really, really mean that. I I can't imagine hoping otherwise about a church. Uh, I I hear every now and then that there are churches that aren't particularly faithful to the Bible. I hear there are churches that are reluctant to talk about important things. And I believe that because I've been around church groups that just, it's as though they ignore everything that's happening in the society around us, and they just don't talk about it. And and I understand that people have different views of it, but I also understand that if we look at the Bible, the Bible can help us understand and navigate this. And if our commitment is to the truth as God reveals it to us, then that's a cause or an opportunity or a reason for unity, not division. And I know everybody's afraid of division, and church people are absolutely allergic to controversy. The least little bit of upset, they they get really, really anxious about that. And I get it. We don't go to church to have anxiety. We go to church to hear from God and to have reassurance. And so that's why when we look at the Bible, we ought to be able to come to agreement that, well, we need to hear what God says. Now, the flip side of that is, you and I know that just because God says it doesn't mean everybody wants to hear it. And I said that last Sunday at church. I, when I was talking about it, I said, some, people, some of you are going to like what I am going to talk about today, and some of you aren't going to like it very much at all. I said, I hope you like it because it's from what the Bible teaches us, but I understand you're going to have to decide about that. Well, people have to decide about that. The, the question for you and the church you attend is, does your church put it out there so people are challenged to decide? Do we speak forthrightly and represent God honestly and truthfully so people are challenged to decide? So, uh, well, I didn't know I was going to go down this road, but as long as we're here, find a church that honors God, that values the Bible, that believes the Bible is God's word to us, and that we need to hear what he says and do what he says, because that's the hope of the future. And here on this program, we call it Faith Is... And I define faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, that's kind of a working definition of faith, and I know there are different ways we use the word faith. You get that. I get that. We all get that. But what helps me about that definition is it reminds me that I need to have, and I can have, confidence in God. And so I've kind of formulated that definition to help us develop that kind of confidence in the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that the Old Testament describes as the one true God, the God that is represented in the person of Jesus who came and lived and died and came back to life and who now rules and reigns forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one true God, and we saw him through the pages of the Bible, walking on this earth and living as we live and experiencing life as we experience life so he knows what it's like to be us and he knows what we need and he knows how to deliver us from evil. And so that's why we can, or part of the reason why we can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And come what may, and even though the world around us looks like it's losing its mind, We can have confidence that God is with us, God has not abandoned us, and we can press forward and not give up, not lose heart. So I hope you will have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And and trust me, 
believe me, we all know what it's like to struggle with that kind of confidence from time to time because our confidence can be shaken by the events around us. I, I understand that. But that doesn't mean we press on to remind ourselves that no matter what happens, God is not diminished. Nothing diminishes God. No matter what happens that we look at and we say, how could this be? God remains undiminished. And so we can have confidence in him. He is still the one who rules and reigns over everything that we know and everything we could never know. And we are not presumptuous to think we know what God knows or think what God thinks. We try to agree with God when he shows us the way to go. But we don't think we're smarter than God. We don't think we know better than God. We just want to develop the confidence in God that comes from realizing that he has our best interest at heart and he will work to redeem the world, to make the wrong things right, to rescue those who have fallen into deception, who have fallen into sin, and we can have confidence in that. And when we pray, we can express that confidence and thanks that God has not forgotten us, that God has not abandoned us, that God will never leave us, and we can walk forward in confidence and hope. And I, and I really want to encourage you to, to preach that sermon to yourself so you don't forget it, so that we can press forward and have that kind of confidence in God. We need to remind ourselves of that because it's very easy to be beaten down by, by wrong. Wrong often seems strong, but God is the ruler still. And we need to remind ourselves, when you go to church, remember that church that's faithful to God, that teaches the Bible, that honors the Bible as the Word of God, that doesn't allow the Bible to be diminished, that never says, well, that's an old book, we understand better now. No, we don't understand better than what God understands. So when you go to that church and when you sing the great songs and hymns of the church, and when you're reminded about all of the great things that that you know about God, let that strengthen your faith. Build on those things so that when you go home, after taking that time on the Lord's Day, when you go home, you're encouraged. You're, you're stretched to keep going. You're determined to never give up because you've met with God and God has met with you. And you and he together can go forward. So, so let's talk about some things today. I, I kind of like what we can do here. And I like this idea that, that we can think out loud together here on America Out Loud. Um, a lot of times that's what I do is kind of think out loud and, and I don't pretend that everything that we talk about, I have all of the answers or even the best answer that helps you, but I want us to engage these things and I want us to think about them. I certainly don't want us to uh, be reluctant to think about them. And last week we were talking about some important things and I had a whole list of things and I didn't even get halfway through the list. Uh, I guess that's the danger I sometimes say to people, it's dangerous when you give a microphone to a preacher. You never know what's going to happen. And I didn't think that would be, ever be true of me, but I have found out it is. And uh, that's just kind of where we are. So just to revisit just a bit, we talked about the lesson of Daniel chapter 1 last week. And we went through the, the story of what happened of, of Daniel and his friends being taken into exile into Babylon they were part of the human capital, the, the treasure of Jerusalem that, that Nebuchadnezzar inherited when God gave Jerusalem to him. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar did not defeat 
God and his people at Jerusalem. It wasn't because Nebuchadnezzar was stronger. It was because God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. Very important. Two important words in that first chapter, gave and resolved. And the first gave is God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar because his people had abandoned him and he needed to correct them. And he warned them this would happen. They didn't believe it. It happened. One of the consequences was that Daniel and his friends were taken captive and taken into exile to Babylon where they were trained in the literature and language of the Babylonians. In the royal court, they were expected to learn everything that was necessary to know so that they could be good advisors to the king. And so they became, as it were, wise men in the royal court of Babylon. And and we don't usually think of them as wise men. We think of wise men as the the magi that came to see Jesus. Well, they, they were, and they may well have come from the Babylonian era, or area, I should say. It was fairly likely Uh, That's about as far as I think we should go. So Daniel went there, and they did learn the literature and language of the Babylonian court. But as you remember from last week, here's the other second of the two words, gave and resolved. So God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, and then Daniel resolved. Daniel made up his mind. It's very interesting how he made up his mind about things. And we don't know why he made up his mind about this thing, but he made up his mind. And the challenge for us is, what will you resolve to do about what's going on today? So Daniel went to the Babylonian court. He was captive. He had no choice. If you refused to do it, you were dead. It was just that simple. Nebuchadnezzar could pronounce your death sentence at a moment and for any reason on a whim if he wanted to. So they go to the Babylonian court and they're instructed to learn the literature and the language of the Babylonians. Well, they... They did that. They learned, even though some of that, much of that, would have been offensive to them as followers of the one true God, they knew the difference. But they nonetheless engaged in the course of study. Part of that process, apparently pretty early in the process, Daniel resolved that he was not going to eat the diet that was prescribed for them. Now, likely they by all accounts, the people of that time would have thought that the diet that these guys were given was the best because they were assigned portions from the king's rations. Whatever the king ate, they were going to eat. And so you would have expected that to be the best cuisine. Well, for whatever reason, and we really don't understand really the reason, Daniel resolved that he was not going to eat that diet. He wanted vegetables. And at great risk to the Babylonian men who served them at great risk to all of them. They were allowed that experiment. And of course, if you know the story, you know that they turned out better after the experimental period and were allowed to continue that ration. Very interesting that Daniel took his stand over food. Food that, by all accounts, people would have thought was the best, and he refused the best for something different. Now, why that was, we really don't understand why that was the the hill he decided to stand on, but he stood there. And it reminds all of us, and uh, without going into it too much, we have to remind ourselves again these days that at some point, maybe points, God is going to challenge you to stand. And the question is, will you stand? It may be a different reason for some of us than others, you know, just using the contemporary uh, issue that's going on right now. The issue of Target may not be your issue. Maybe 
Maybe you just can't do that. I don't, I don't know. I'm not here to throw stones at you. My, my real challenge is, what is enough to cause you to say no more? What is enough to, to cause you to take a stand? When and where will you say, nope, faithfulness to God requires me, and I cannot do anything different than that? That's the, that's the question. That's the point. That's the challenge from Daniel chapter 1. So, two words, gave and resolved. God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel went away in exile, studied the royal court, but said no to the food rations. They completed the course of study. They turned out to be better than all the rest of them. And in the course of that summary, toward the end of the chapter, we read that that God gave Daniel and his friends special abilities. Particularly, he gave Daniel insight into visions and dreams. But it turns out they were better than all the rest of them because God gave them wisdom and knowledge, what they needed essentially to manage life in the royal court. And the reason that God gave them that was a response to their faithfulness. God knew the situation they were in, and God saw that they resolved they would not be moved. This is it. And we are going to stand here. And God honored that. And I'm convinced God will honor his people today when we take a stand. I'm not going to promise you that everything will turn out just right for you. There may be hard things that we have to go through. People today are taking a stand and they are losing their jobs. I don't know how to explain that other than that sometimes God calls us to take a stand. And sometimes we have to bear bear the penalty of that, so to speak. We have to, we have to endure through that. And, and I don't want that for you or anyone, but that's the lesson of Daniel. And the lesson is that God will be with us. God will honor that commitment of faithfulness to him. And so we need to press through. Now, the, the other reason I remind us of that, and I'm not going to go into the rest of the Daniel, Daniel this week. There are many stories, and uh, we, maybe we'll go, go through those. I, I really, really like the stories of Daniel. But the important second takeaway is not only that Daniel resolved, but I want to remind us this week, the, the second really important thing that we learn from the stories of Daniel through chapter 6 is that they resolved one time, and that wasn't the end. That was the beginning. Because Daniel and his friends faced repeated challenges to their faithfulness and to God's being able to step in and help them. It's very interesting, just to make one connection, that in the very next chapter of Daniel, Daniel uses God's gift of special ability and insight with visions and dreams to deliver he and his friends and the rest of the wise men of the Babylonian court from death. So I don't know how God might work in your situation. I know God rescued Daniel, and it traces all the way back to Daniel resolved. He was not going to give in at that point. What point will you say this much no further? And then remember, it's not over just because you resolved once. There will be continuing challenges. There always are. I don't know how to, I don't know how to help us avoid that. I don't know that it can be avoided. But 
I'm reminded that these kinds of things are a marathon, not a sprint. And we just have to be prepared for that. A little review of um, Daniel chapter 1. Now let's, let's talk about some other things. Let's think out loud about some other things. Now one of the realities that we know from Daniel is that he was operating in a political environment. Now people say, whoa, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about the Bible, not political environments. Well, we are talking about the Bible, and Daniel's story takes place in a political environment. It was the royal court of the king of Babylon. That's a pretty political place. A lot of palace intrigue would have gone on then. We, we know from history that's not uncommon. So here he is in the midst of a political environment and navigating all of that. And today people get really nervous about thinking about Christians being involved in a political environment. Well, let me help you with a couple of things because we need to think out loud about these things. And, and the way we think has consequences in the way we act. Or as some people put it, and uh, something I want to talk about a little bit more, maybe today if we get to it, this idea that, that there, are, there are consequences to our ideas. You know, ideas aren't just abstract ideas. They have consequences because they, they influence the way we live. So I want us to think about these ideas better and, and more correctly. So a long time ago, I was thinking about this idea of politics and citizenship seems to me that years ago we, we had more of a consciousness of citizenship. And I've talked about this from time to time. You may have heard me talk about this. It, it, it's a little hard for me to get a handle on it because I don't really remember. It was a long time ago. I was very young. But it seems to me that, that there was a consciousness, and this goes back well, to, the, to the mid-60s is what I think I remember. So I was, I was in elementary school. But there was a consciousness that we were supposed to be good citizens in our country. And I don't know where or why that was true or how it got to be communicated or where I picked up on that idea. But nonetheless, it seemed to me that we had this sense that we should be good citizens. Well, now, fast forward to these days, and we don't really hear a lot about citizenship in terms of our responsibilities to the to the world we live in, to our local community, to be good citizens, to our state, to be good citizens, to be good citizens of our nation. We just don't talk about the, the duties and the responsibilities of citizenship. And I began to think about that some years ago, quite a few, I don't remember how many now, and, and I was trying to, to sort out how do we communicate this idea of citizenship when every time we turn around and we get involved as good citizens, people say, well, that's being political and I can't be political. Well, uh, we need to talk about that on a couple of levels. So let's talk about the idea that can Christians be involved in any political arenas? And I know, believe me, I know quite well that there are traps to avoid in getting involved in any public policy areas. There are all kinds of people out there, and there will always be someone against your very good idea. Always. Kind of stunning sometimes, because often we think, well, why won't people just do the right thing? Why can't they see this? Uh, you will always find people that are against your very good idea. But that shouldn't deter us from getting involved. And, and we live in a country that 
has been given the gift of liberty. Abraham Lincoln described it as a nation of the people, by the people, for the people. So I, I was trying to think, how do we help people understand that, well, just because somebody calls it politics doesn't mean we have to stay away from it or agree with them. And a lot of times people will say politics is messy and dirty and all the rest of the things. And, and yeah, it, it is messy. Yeah, it can be really disappointing, really corrupt in some ways, really um, baffling in others. The um, tendency and push to go along to get along is disappointing, but that still can't deter us. So I began to think, well, if people want to describe politics as, as dirty, as messy, as corrupt, as unclean, shall we say, I thought, well, unclean, that resonates with what we understand from the Bible. Unclean. And I began to think, now, see, if we're, if we're expecting the Bible, and, and I do, and I hope you do, to, to help us understand our times, then we can think about what went on in the Bible in ways that help us make application to our day. So people think politics is unclean, and I began to think about how does that fit in the Bible. There's a robust understanding of clean and unclean all the way from the Old Testament. But then I realized in the New Testament, there were a group of people that were considered unclean. So unclean that people were obligated, if they had this disease, to warn everyone else to stay away from them. Can you imagine? You have this disease not because you wanted it, because you got it, and now you have to warn people to stay away from you. Just stunning to think about. Well, these people were lepers, and they were sadly the victims of a dreadful disease that would take their life and that caused them to be outcasts and they had to warn people, stay away, lest you catch this disease. But there was one person in the New Testament that did not run away from lepers. It was dangerous to touch a leper, but this person did not hesitate to touch a leper. This person, when he touched a leper, something changed immediately. And it was the leper. The leper got better. You see, when Jesus touched people, Jesus was undiminished. But his touch made people whole. It still does. But I want you to think about as it relates to messy, unpleasant subjects or arenas of life that we are often called to enter and to realize that when Jesus calls us, the church, the people of God, the visible representation of Jesus in the world, when he calls us to get involved, then what's supposed to happen is our touch on an ugly, unclean, disappointing, discouraging situation should make that situation better. And we should not expect it to make us unclean we should rise to the occasion and make it cleaner. You and I are not going to fix the selfishness, the ruthlessness, and all the rest of politics. It's just not going to happen. But we can always touch it and make it better. And the more God's people touch these important areas, the better they should get. We should expect that because God is with us and God will help us. 
So that's one of the ways that we need to think. Now, if we have this idea that politics is just dirty and messy and we must stay away from it, then we're never going to get involved. We're never going to entertain the thought of getting involved. But when we, when we realize that as the visible presence of Jesus, we can touch all of the things in our world and make them better, then that ought to cause us to, to really think carefully about what it is we could do even what it is God is calling us to do, what stand God is calling us to make, so that we can be a part of a healing touch on our world, even a world that has, that has obviously and apparently dropped to such a low position as the world of politics, where there's so much lying and stealing, backbiting, unbelievable stuff goes on, and we only hear parts of it from what I understand. But what, what would be the, the amazing benefit if God's people stepped in like Jesus stepped in with a healing touch? What would be the benefit if we called people to, to righteous living and to do the right thing in the name of Jesus because he's the one who wants to make all the wrongs right? And do you imagine that he could make the wrongs of politics right? I have no doubt that he could. But he's counting on you, he's counting on me, to take a stand and to realize that if we've used the excuse that politics is a dirty business, I can't get involved, then we need to step back and say, wait a minute, there is a healer who cleans up even the worst messes. And if he calls us to do it, he will be with us and he will make things whole. Well, that's a beginning thinking out loud. There's a whole lot more, so I hope you'll hang with us. We're going to be back in just a minute. We're going to take a break, and I want to talk some more about this in just a minute. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has. Creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Did you know that doctors and nurses have been swabbing their noses with povidone iodine to protect from airborne threats like colds, flus, and pandemic era strains for decades? Cofix RX took that idea and made a more complete nasal formula with lasting cleansing effects. 
Maybe you're traveling soon or going to an event. Are you concerned somebody nearby might be sick? Maybe the office or classroom stresses you out. Get yourself a bottle of Cofix Rx nasal solution. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rx nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we help each other, we challenge each other to stretch in God's direction, and to understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we want to have faith. So here we go. We're going to continue our thinking out loud today, and we've been doing that well on some important subjects, and I've been wanting to encourage us to to think differently about some things, because the ideas we have in our minds have consequences. They result in the decisions we make and the actions we take. So we want to be conscious of those. And And I was thinking out loud with us about this idea of politics, and we got started on the idea that politics is dirty, but it can be cleaned up because Jesus cleaned up even the worst uncleanness. And as his representatives, we should be able to do that too. And he calls us to do just that. Now, the second part of that that I really want us to think about is not just the idea that we can and must engage in every area of life. We can engage and we must engage in the places God calls us to do that. And he won't call you to do everything, I don't suppose. I don't see how any of us can do everything. But where he calls us, we want to respond. And we can make a difference in even the worst situations in life. The second thing I want us to think about, and we started down this road thinking about citizenship, And I want to make a distinction between politics and citizenship that may help you, and and because it's helped me a lot. And and I can make a clear decision then and clear separation in my mind of what I mean by all of these things. So I tried to develop this definition of, of what I meant by politics and what I wanted to help people think about when they thought or heard the word politics versus this idea of citizenship. And some people are getting a little nervous about this first definition, don't be nervous about it. It's just meant to be descriptive. But I began to say to people, and I still use this today, I think it's helpful to me. Uh, Anything that helps me, I hope helps somebody else. But I said that we need to think about politics as the pursuit of power. Now, I think that's what makes a lot of people nervous because this idea of power, they they don't like the idea of someone having power. But there's nothing essentially wrong with power. It's how it's used that's where we get into right and wrong. And, and there's nothing wrong with pursuing a legitimate opportunity to have the responsibility to exercise the power of governance. So every city needs a mayor or some, some way to govern civil society. Every state needs some way to do that. So we elect governors and members of legislatures. And in countries, we do the same thing. We form governments, 
And so certain people have to take certain responsibilities. They are often viewed as positions of power. Now, I wish they would think about them more as positions of responsibility than of power, but right now, most people tend to think of it as power, and it's very seductive to have power, and so people get drawn into that. And so politics, in one very real sense, is the pursuit of power. When someone runs for office, they're pursuing power. They want us to elect them so that they can have the responsibility of that office and exercise the power related to that. If it's a member of the legislature, it's advancing legislation or stopping it. It's voting for certain things or against certain things. All of those kinds of things are related to that job as a legislator. And so any elected office is a position of some power, of some responsibility, because there will always be decisions to be made. And we entrust those decisions to the people we elect. That's why we need to elect the best people. So all of that to remind us that politics, in one sense, and the way I want us to think about it, is that it's the pursuit of power. Nothing wrong with that. That's just what it is. Now, you may not want to do that. I'm not going to run for elective office. That's not who I am or what God has called me to do. Just not going to do it. But maybe you need to. And I would never discourage someone from considering that God may be calling them to pursue elective office, to pursue a position of responsibility that gives them a certain amount of decision-making power. So that's politics. Now, we also talked about citizenship. And we need to think carefully about what we mean about citizenship. Because if, and I believe it's true, God gave us this gift of liberty, and if, and I believe it's true, we are responsible for preserving that gift, then what does it mean to be a good citizen? How do we exercise our responsibilities as citizens? How do we show people what good citizenship looks like? Well, I defined citizenship as the pursuit of righteous government. Now, people say, well, hmm, is that all there is to it? Well, there might be some more to it, but think about it. If we pursue righteous government, then other things will fall into place because we will elect righteous people. We will form the kind of institutions that function for good and for doing right, for turning wrong things into right, and for stopping wrong things from happening. It's the pursuit of righteous government. I think that's what citizens can and must do. You're probably, most of us would agree, that we don't want to run for elective office for a variety of reasons. It's not what God has called us to do. Maybe we don't have the gifts to do that. Uh, I, I clearly understand that. But we can all be citizens, and we can all demonstrate good citizenship by pursuing righteous government, by objecting when our governments do unrighteous things, by saying to our elected members of our city council, for example, you voted for this and it was wrong, and I want you to know that it was wrong, and I want to call you and admonish you to do right the next time. We can't have this unrighteousness in our city. Well, I don't think we talk about things on those, those levels or in those terms, but why couldn't you? Maybe you need to get to know your member of the city council. 
so that you can say to them, you know, we need to do righteous things. And you call them to a higher level of thinking because often they will do the expedient things, the things that they're pressured to do or the things that will help them get more power. And so citizenship is in all kinds of ways the pursuit of righteous government. And I often hear people say, well, what can I do? And when I begin to talk to them about what they can do, about some of the steps they could take, uh, they get real quiet and don't want to do that. They just want somebody else to fix it. Well, God might be calling you to be the one. And if he is, step up. Dare to be a good citizen and pursue righteous government. You'll make mistakes. Don't worry about that. You just got to try. There's no real textbook. There's no real checklist to know what to do now and what to do next. There are some things that we've learned, that I've learned, that some of you already know that help with that. But don't fear making a mistake as much as doing nothing. We need to step up and do what we need to do. That's really important. So we need to pursue righteous government. We need to be good citizens. We don't need to be put in a corner or intimidated or silenced by this idea that it's political. The church, the people of God should be quiet. No. In our country, under the government God has given us, we are obligated because we are citizens of that country. So we need to get involved and be involved. And I want to encourage you to distinguish between politics and citizenship so that you can understand that some people need to pursue the offices that we elect them for, that they need to pursue the power. That's okay. Somebody needs to do that job. But as citizens, all of us need to pursue righteous government, and we want righteous people to form that government. So let's continue to think out loud, and I haven't, still haven't gotten very far on my list from last week, but here's another term that I want to make sure we, we talk about and that we're aware of. And I think most of us have heard the term woke being used. I've used it, you've used it, lots of people use it. I'm not always sure we understand what we mean by the idea of woke. Essentially what it means in the way it's generally used these days is that it means that you have gotten with it, you understand, and you agree with certain values and certain positions that are going on in the world. You agree and support certain groups of people. And, and that makes you woke because you are aware of their needs and you now support them. It's not just being aware, it's, it implies supporting them in some active sense. Now, this idea of woke, and this is where a lot of people don't understand, is at, is at heart a Marxist term. Karl Marx in his writings talked about how people would become awakened to the ideas that he was suggesting. And so that's where the idea came, that when you are awakened to Marxist ideology, then you are woke. I prefer, and I've taken to doing this a lot more than I was, I I prefer, instead of using the term woke, to use the term Marxist to describe these kinds of things. Because people don't understand, they think woke is kind of benign and, and not significant. But when you say Marxist, I hope that gets people's attention a little bit more. And, and the whole idea of Marxism then, people say, well, wait a minute, Marxism talked about economic problems and the separation between the, the haves and the have-nots, so to speak, the workers and the people who owned the factories where they worked, those kinds of things. 
and and he tried to divide people and he tried to to say that that the workers were being mistreated by the owners of the factory and so that resulted in revolution and ushered in what he hoped would be this utopian society. Well, there's another idea out of Marxism, this idea of utopia. There is no such thing as utopia. The only utopia that we know about is one day God's going to make all the wrong things right and we're going to live forever with him in heaven. And that's going to be the the best understanding we have of utopia. So don't get caught up in the idea that we can make heaven on earth. We can make it more heavenly, but that ultimate solution to that problem will come one day when we gather with the Lord and we live forever with him. So woke is a Marxist term. Sometimes people want to say, well, it's not Marxist because it doesn't deal with the separation between workers and the owners. It's not an argument of economics in this country. And so it can't be Marxist. Well, I hear that, but they miss the point. And so we maybe need to remind each other that that there is a, a better way to think about that. It's still Marxist at heart because it sows division. All identity politics is an attempt to divide people against each other. And so I hear people talking about American Marxism. And I think that's a much better way to think about it. Think in terms of it's American Marxism, which refers to this idea of dividing people. So all of the issues that you see happening these days are issues to divide people. Every time the LGBTQ agenda is an attempt to divide people. The trans agenda is an attempt to divide people. The whole idea of same-sex marriage is an attempt to divide people. It's not so much that everyone agrees with that ideology It's an attempt to divide people, and whatever will divide people to change the society is acceptable. And so we have American Marxism, all of these things attempting race. The whole idea that we hear so much about racism, that's an expression of American Marxism, an attempt to divide people against each other. Now, sometimes you'll hear people use the term American socialism, which is another description of what I'm saying you might call American Marxism. Whatever name, and we need to be careful because the names change all the time, that's another device to confuse people and to divide people, to keep people off balance so they don't know right from wrong. Don't, don't, be, don't be confused by that. Don't let somebody say, well, the classic definition of Marxism is, or the classic definition of socialism is. I understand that. I understand they have classic definitions. But as we are seeing them expressed in this country at this time, it's an American version of Marxism. It's an American version of socialism. And we need to make sure we're aware of that. So I hope that helps you understand the concept of woke a little bit. It's really rooted in Marxism. It's really rooted in division. And I also think that we, this ought to be a reminder again that if we're going to have a foundation to stand on, we have to go back to what God has said in the Bible. And that's how we stand up against these things. Does God say this? Does God say that? What does God say about the LGBTQ agenda? What does God say about the trans ideology? What does God say about marriage and what it's supposed to mean? And when we base our understandings on God's vision of life as it was meant to be lived, then we understand that these other things are divisive and they're actually assaults on 
God and people who are created in the image of God. And we could go down that road, and probably we should sometime, but we won't do that right now. So we talked a little bit about Marxism and American Marxism and socialism and American socialism. And so I, I, I want to tell you this story that, that really still is quite alive. It's happened a number of years ago, but I think about it every now and then. I'm surprised how often I think about it. But our church had been involved in teaching some classes on the United States Constitution. We were trying to be good citizens and help people understand what the Constitution said and, and to evaluate whether the government was doing what it was authorized to do under the Constitution. And yes, sadly, we've discovered that they do a lot of things that the, they have twisted and, and uh, shaped the Constitution to mean that it didn't mean. But that's another story, too. But anyway, we were having these classes, and, and we did them repeatedly. A couple times a year there for a while. We had a lot of community people came. I was really quite amazed that they kept coming. But we talked about the Constitution, what it meant. And there was a couple that came and participated in all of those, sat on the front row. I got to know them real well and, and enjoyed them. I'd see them at different events from time to time. And I still see them a little bit. They aren't out as much these days, but I still see them and know them. I remember quite a number of years ago, I was at an event, a community event. I don't remember what it was or why I was there. It was just one of the things that you do to try to be a part of the community and be a good citizen. And so there I was. And I hadn't been there, but just a few minutes, I walked in through the door and and all of a sudden, this very dear, kind lady came rushing up to me and and she had this urgent look on her face and, and really troubled sense. And she asked me a question no one had ever asked me before. And she looked at me and she said, Pastor Rick, was Jesus a socialist? And I went, oh boy, Nobody ever asked me that question. Now what do I do? What do I say? Well, I had never really thought about that because I had never really thought maybe Jesus was a socialist. So it didn't occur to me that I needed an answer to explain why he was not. I mean, he's Jesus. He's not a socialist. He's Jesus. Give me a break. Well, we all understood that. But she needed an answer. And it was concerning her. And and I knew why, because people had been saying, and you'd hear this, and I think you still hear it now and then, People will say Jesus was a socialist. They say that as a way to encourage people to adopt socialist ideology. And so here I am, I'm the pastor, and she's asking me to tell her about Jesus, and I'm supposed to know all of this, and I'm supposed to be able to give her an answer, was Jesus a socialist? Well, in those moments, you kind of wonder what to say, and thankfully, the Holy Spirit helps people like me who just don't always know what to say, but he gives us answers when we didn't have answers. And in a moment, as I was standing there thinking, what am I going to say to this lady? Because I I knew he wasn't, but I didn't know if I knew how to explain it. And all of a sudden, God puts in my head that Jesus was not a socialist because he was not coercive. And I explained to her that socialism is ultimately coercive because the socialists want to enact laws forms of government that require people to act in certain ways, and Jesus came to set people free. He was not coercive about anything. In fact, to put it plainly, he allows you to follow him or not. Yeah, that's true. He allows you to follow him or not. And so I explained to her, no, Jesus was not a socialist because he was never coercive. Now, there's more to it than that. A lot more, and I and I know there are better answers than that. But that was just what I had from God 
in the spur of the moment uh, to answer someone who needed to know. Now, I have since discovered there's a book, and if you want to pursue this a little bit more, I recommend this book. It was written by Lawrence W. Reed. He used to be the president and is now the president emeritus of an organization called FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. And he wrote a book with the intriguing title, Was Jesus a Socialist? And he talks from the scriptures and from a lot of things. You can do a web search and find out some some things about uh, Larry Reed. I've met him. He's a wonderful guy. And, And this book is really, really insightful. So take a look at that book, Was Jesus a Socialist? by Lawrence W. Reed. And you'll get your answers to that. And it'll be much more satisfying than my simple answer. But we do need to have some answers to those kinds of things. All right, so we're thinking out loud. We're continuing that process. We're thinking, okay, now what should we be thinking? So how about this? When I was at the pastor's summit, one of the pastors there reminded all of us of something that we all know. And he reminded us that in the Bible, we are admonished, encouraged, challenged to be strong and to be courageous, to be bold for God. Now, you may remember from Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. If you read the scriptures, you, you know, if you know the story of that, you can go back and check it. You'll discover that Moses had died and Joshua was now to be the leader of Israel, and to lead them into the promised land. Now, as part of that, he took on a huge responsibility, and God began to give him some instructions and some encouragement about that. One of the instructions and encouragement was that he should be faithful to the Scriptures. That's the same thing we encourage each other today, to be faithful to the Scriptures. But he also said, and it's a very widely known verse, and we think of it often, many of us do, but he said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, it's a command that God gives Joshua, it's a command. Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now around our church, and I think I've mentioned it here a number of times, that we have said to each other that we're not going to be afraid, that the Bible says fear not and we're not going to be afraid. We've decided we're not going to be afraid. Now, we all understand when there's a threat of an oncoming train that you get off the tracks, that's a good reason to be afraid. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about we don't need to fear the people who want to coerce us into things we know are wrong. We need to be courageous in those situations. We don't need to bow down to things that that we shouldn't bow down to. We need to be courageous. And so this pastor at the pastor's summit, he reminded us of all of that. And then he said, you know, we need to simplify that. Uh, and I'm, he didn't explain it exactly the way I am. I, I wouldn't want him to be guilty of my explanation. But essentially, he said, we need to, to, to encapsulate this idea that we should be strong and courageous in a way that helps us make it a part of who we are. And I have to confess that I sometimes have not really asserted that God is with us or with me. Now, I would say God is with you. I would have no trouble with that. But it always felt a little, uh, I don't know if it's arrogant. I didn't mean it to be presumptuous. But it always felt a little odd for me to say, God is with me. But if I believe the Bible, that's, that's true. I have to say that. And so at our church, we've been ending the service. And I hope I keep remembering this. I'm going to get, have to get somebody to remind me because I, I just have that kind of memory. 
But we've been ending, and so I want to end today with this admonition. Be strong. Be bold. For the Lord your God is with you. Be strong. Be bold. For the Lord your God is with you. And because of that, you can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So be strong. Be bold. For the Lord, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, your God is with you. I'm Pastor Rick, and I'll be with you next week. Join us again.